Our New Testament reading will pick up back in John chapter 12, starting in verse 27. Y'all sound beautiful today. I just want to say it's a really good set of music, and y'all sound wonderful. Praise the Lord. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And our sermon text is in Matthew chapter 7. I'll begin reading at verse 24. Build your house on the rock. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built the house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is the word of our Lord. You can be seated. Good morning, Ty music team. Thank you so much. Uh, Nick, Ty, thanks for reading. Ryan, thanks for, for praying. Um, Oh, what a blessing to be here. My heart is very full. I pray yours is too. If just singing those songs and those prayers and these, these truths and these themes just aren't uh, fortifying your soul and stimulating your mind and encouraging and strengthening your heart, then I pray this morning that the Lord will just ravish you and that, um, and that we will, as we just sang, we will all together as with one voice magnify the Lord, glorify God for his greatness. He is great. And what a blessing to just exist and to live and to be saved and to serve the living God. We do know how the story ends. We know how the story ends because God has told us, right? And we know that he is the victor. He is the risen Christ. And we are heirs of God, join heirs with Christ for his disciples. If you're truly his disciples and you belong to him, then the story ends well for you. And if you are not, the story can still end well for you. 
I trust in Christ, look to him for salvation. He alone can save, and he is an awesome savior. So as we get into our text this morning, pray with me one more time, and let's ask that the Lord would just teach us and that he would move in our hearts. And, and uh, our passage has a very somber and dire warning, but it also has such great news. So it's very reciprocal. So let's pray for hearts and minds to hear it and to understand and to grow in grace and knowledge this morning and perhaps for some of you to uh to see the lord jesus risen high and exalted and to put your faith your trust in him let's pray together father god we thank you so much for this morning it is so true we have a firm foundation how firm a foundation we have and it has been laid out for us in your excellent word and has been purchased for us by the blood of christ and secured for us Uh, by your resurrection. Lord, thank you so much for saving us. Thank you that you are a gracious God. You are holy and righteous and just, but you are also merciful and kind. You are a God who loves to save. You are willing to touch and to cleanse the leper. And and so many examples we, we see and read of you And in your word is filled with this great and very many precious promises. And so, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, Father, I pray that we will have attentive minds and hearts, every person in here, from the youngest to the oldest. Lord, pray that that you will teach us and grow us, and that we would, with one voice and with one heart and with one mind, even now, continue to strive to magnify you and to glorify you and exalt your name together and what we do as your people. So, Father, be glorified in this time. Please speak to us through your word. May your Holy Spirit uh, just work in every heart what is needed. For you know, for you are God, and we just trust you with that. I trust you with that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... uh, we just, uh, Ty just read the sermon text for us, and uh, it's a very familiar parable, and it's very short, right? Um, there in Matthew 7, which if you know, you know, just a, a cursory, just kind of a, a, a cursory outline of Matthew, you know, this is right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which spans chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's just a long discourse recorded for us, so often referred to as the greatest sermon ever preached, right? Uh, uh, any sermon Jesus preached would be the greatest sermon ever preached, right? And so, but it's interesting. And, and so tying this, this parable and, and just kind of getting into the heart and the mind of God of why he closes the Sermon on the Mount with this parable and just where it falls. I want us to take a look at that uh, this morning because the Sermon on the Mount covers a whole host of topics, right? As I'm sure you know, right? And, uh, Topics and teachings pertaining to his kingdom, to the gospel, to how we should live in light of those things. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount just penetrates, doesn't he? He just penetrates the superficiality of human righteousness, right, and, and, and false religion. And he cuts right to the heart of God's true standard of righteousness, okay? And the sermon is filled with lessons on how to live a God-honoring life, all right, the Sermon on the Mount teaches us about giving, true giving, true prayer, anger, lust, anxiety, marriage, divorce, 
We have the golden rule there, right? Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Just great, godly, righteous principles. But it's not just a moral guidebook teaching us how God expects us to live. It also points us to our gospel need, to our need for Jesus. In verse 20, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, right? And as far as keeping the law and human perfection, they were pretty top notch. So Jesus is getting at something when he says that. And all throughout the sermon, he's just, he's really cutting to the heart of things, isn't he? He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart and you're guilty. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, then you are, you are guilty. You are liable, right? You're guilty. That's that, the root, the heart of murder. And you're guilty for that. So he cuts to the heart. And we look at that and we say, ah, you know, who can be saved? We can't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. We can't keep that law perfectly. That's not how our hearts are wired, right? I like what... Um, Jay Gresham Machen says on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the Sermon on the Mount, like all the rest of the New Testament, really leads a man straight to the foot of the cross. It does, right? Because in reading it, you realize just how sinful and broken you are and just how short you fall of God's true standard of holiness. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a heart issue and we're broken and we're fallen. And the sermon, right, does such a great job of pointing that out that it really does point us, lead us straight to the foot of the cross to say, we need a different righteousness then. You need a different righteousness than your own, right? And so, by the end of the sermon, Jesus is really honing in on this, right? And on this fact, he closes by focusing on this aspect of true salvation, true hearing, genuine discipleship, all right? And it's gracious that he does this. Yes, uh, this is a somber warning. All right, there's some bad news here, but he's giving it as a gift because there's good news with it. And if you know and recognize the bad news, then then. Boy, how glorious is the good news, right? So with that being said, let's just back up before we actually get to um, the, the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. Let's back up a bit. If you're in Matthew 7, look at verse 13. Okay, he says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So he makes this statement, right? And he's building and he's leading. Then he gets into a section, and we'll look more into this, on good and bad trees, right? And so you just see this direction as he's closing out this sermon, all right? That true disciples, all right, hear in faith, all right? They enter by this narrow way. There's this narrow way. Okay, there, there's, this, there's, this, uh, there's this path that God has given, all right? And true disciples that hear in faith, okay, as he's given this litmus test, this is what I think, at least one of the major things he's pointing out, right? That true disciples hear in faith, true disciples know Jesus, okay? And to know Jesus, 
all right? It's to be changed by Jesus. God changes their lives. God's Holy Spirit dwells within his disciples. You have a new nature if you're in Christ, which means you have new loves, right? You have new purpose because you have a new Lord, the Lord Jesus, not yourself, not your comfort, not your goals and dreams. They've been swallowed up and you look to Christ and he is now your life. And we say with Paul and with the Corinthian believers, here's our heartbeat, that we make it our aim to please him always, as 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So at the heart of this passage that we're going to look through, starting there at verse 13 and working towards the, the illustration of the wise and foolish builders, here's the question right at the heart of this. Do you know Jesus? Or better yet, does he know you, as we'll see in this passage Okay, your eternal destination hinges on the answer. Jesus said in John 17, three, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. What is that? That's eternal life. That's the, that's the heart, that's the theme, that is eternal life, knowing God, all right? And Jesus whom he sent, right? So there is here, all right, as this sermon ends, this question and this theme, that's the pulse right now uh, in this part of the scripture. All right, so let's pick up um, and let's look, and we'll go back to 13. We'll look at this context, but let's pick up at 20, verse 21. Jesus says this, all right, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The parallel account of this is found in Luke 6. You don't have to turn there, but Jesus, this is how Luke, all right, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starts this section. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So R.C. Sproul calls this the scariest passage in the New Testament, all right? Because, listen, this is a group of people right, who is making the right profession, okay? They're recognizing Jesus, all right, as Lord. And not only as Lord, but as Lord, Lord, okay? This double meaning, we see it in Scripture, all right? And it denotes intimacy or emphasis or fervency, right? We see, we see that happening with Abraham right before he's about to sacrifice his son. Abraham, Abraham, Okay, we see it with Martha. We see it sometimes for not great reasons with Peter, Simon, Simon, right? Um, and then we see it even in when Jesus is teaching and emphasizing something. And when he says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say to you, this double word really is important, okay? I really believe uh, in the context here, Jesus is getting at something. These people are, are they're, they're professing not only just a general knowledge of Christ, but some degree of intimacy with him, okay? These could be people who in our day and time perhaps prayed a prayer when they were younger, walked an aisle, raised their hand, and those things, that could be the moment they were saved. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm just saying if you're just counting on some past thing that you did with no current fruit of discipleship, right, then, then be leery, be careful, okay, because I have a feeling, right, that, that there's a lot of people that will be surprised, right, and that breaks my heart. So don't simply count 
on an old profession, a raised hand. All right, this group would be people who would actively be participating in church, okay? Knowing the Bible, memorizing scripture, uh, joining small groups, right? These spiritual events happen, okay? And so not only do they call Jesus by the right name, look at verse 22. He says, and on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? So not only do they call him the right name and presume intimacy, but they even do some degree of spiritual works and not just spiritual or religious in general, like, oh, we pray or we, we you know, give to charity or we meditate. No, these are Christian exercises. They're calling Jesus Lord, they're prophesying in his name, they're casting out demons in his name, they're doing these things in his name. So surely they're good, right? They're in. Well, that's not what Jesus says. The problem is, Jesus says there are many who say and do these things that will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 23 and see what he says to them. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity for I never knew you, or workers of lawlessness, the ESV translates that. So there are false words that sound good, false professions that sound good, false works that look good, but they do not come from individuals who actually know Christ, or that is not known by Christ, They have not been saved by grace through faith, nor made righteous by the imputed righteousness of Christ. We know that because what does Jesus call them? Workers of lawlessness, workers of iniquity, evildoers. These are not true believers, okay? They are evildoers at heart, which is why Jesus refers to them as workers of iniquity. And notice he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Not I knew you at one time, but boy, you really blew it. Okay, right? So this kind of fortifies our position as a confessional reformed Baptist church on the, the, the perseverance of the saints. This isn't a passage about losing salvation. Jesus says very clearly, depart from me, I never knew you. Okay, there was not true faith. There was not true salvation. They are not disciples of Christ. They hear, but they don't really know because they're not born again. So, but... There is a hearing that stems from faith, faith in Christ. And faith in Christ is the crux that this entire issue revolves around. So let's keep unpacking this, okay? All right, in Romans 14, 23, we read this. Whatever is not of faith is sin. You can say and do all the right things, but according to Hebrews eleven six, but without faith, It is impossible to please God, okay? And again, Romans 14, 23 just told us, and whatever is not of faith, anything not of faith is sin, okay? Because its main object is not God and his glory, right? And his worth, right? So sin is ultimately defined as whatever is not of faith. So whatever these these professing disciples 
were doing was not coming from hearts of faith and it didn't please God and it wasn't uh, through faith that they knew Christ. And so Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, Romans 16, on the other hand, Romans 16, 25 states that there's an obedience of faith, okay? There, the, the, that's what the Bible calls it. Along with faith comes this obedience that God gives. It comes along with true discipleship. Spurgeon said this about the obedience of faith. He said, the obedience of faith springs from a principle within and not from compulsion without. It is sustained by the mind's soberest reasoning and the heart's warmest passion. The man reasons with himself that he ought to obey his redeemer, his father, and his God. And at the same time, the love of Christ compels him. He's compelled to do so. In a sense of great obligation and an apprehension of the appropriateness of obedience and spiritual renewal of the heart, work in obedience which becomes essential to the sanctified soul. That's a big quote, right? And there's a lot there. But just, just to pull out from it, just what's going on, all right? The obedience that comes from faith, from true hearing, is, comes from a changed heart. I'm just going to paraphrase. It comes from this principle within, from the heart's warmest passion, okay? And the love of Christ is now what compels us to obey. Jesus said it like this, in this same chapter, Matthew chapter seven. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. All right, so let's work together, right? So what's at stake here is whether or not one's profession in Christ is true. Is it based upon faith in God and the work of Christ and his righteousness, right? That's what results in the new birth and in a new nature whereby we love God and devotion to God through Christ is paramount. If you are born again, then knowing God and serving Christ and living for his kingdom becomes your new and overarching goal. Not one of your goals, that is your goal. Everything funnels through that, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. So listen, just, just, just think through that, right? Let, let's just make that real and practical. So whether you're eating chili dogs or drinking tea on the porch or wherever, going to work, exercising, listening to music, doing homework, sitting in traffic, washing the dishes, changing diapers, posting on Facebook, watching Netflix or YouTube or whatever you watch, right? Cutting grass, spending time with family and friends. Literally, anything and everything you do is all about Jesus, And what you do and how you do it and why you do it, right, has to be processed through that funnel, right? You do what you do because of Christ. And we do those things. There's nothing inherently wrong with 
those things, right? Right? To a degree, right? Depending on why you're doing it, what you're doing, and how you're doing it, right? Those things can be done in ways that honor God. And that's the point. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God, right? But, but let's, don't just let that be a lofty verse, you know, on the wall or on the plaque or on the shelf. Like, apply that. Whatever you do, is that your heartbeat? Do you sit in traffic? Do you do the chores? Do you do the eating and the drinking, the mundane things? Are you driven by a desire to know Christ and to love him and to obey and honor him and that all you do will magnify him and exalt him? That's how the true disciple is driven, right? And that's how we, we conduct ourselves in our day-to-day lives. So Christianity is not a compartmentalized thing. There is no real divide between the secular and the sacred, right? Jesus is life, right? And if you're a believer, he is your life, right? And then that overarches and undergirds and just cuts through everything you do and think and say, all your motives, all your goals, right? As a disciple of Christ and a child of God, your whole disposition is now oriented in this way. Just a few scriptures. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I eagerly desire to keep the greatest commandment. I want with all my heart, right, to love the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, Philippians 1.21, for me, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain, because I inherit and I'll be with Christ and God face to face. Philippians 3.8, we say like Paul, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count, does that bother Paul? Is he burdened by that? No, I count them as rubbish, okay, in order that I may gain Christ, who is far superior. So, beloved, Jesus is life. He is your life if you're a disciple. You were created and saved for his glory, and as a born-again believer, you would have it no other way, would you? Knowing God, honoring Jesus, that's your greatest joy and delight. Now, we fall short. And what I'm not intending to do as I preach and have just kind of worked through this passage, don't want to cast unnecessary doubt, right? So that's not the point is just to make every, turn this into a big guessing game. What I'm really hoping and trying to do is, you know, is expound the scriptures and then just kind of put forth and these reminders, right? And these challenges of what true discipleship looks like right? And, and what's being taught and said here by Jesus. So, so now let's go back and let's consider, all right, this warning, because there is a warning here. There's something we need to be aware of, okay? And um, Jesus has given some very dire warnings. In verse 13, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who pass through it are many. Then as we move down to his, his next section on good trees and bad trees, he says in verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down 
and thrown into the fire. Okay, destroyed. It's destruction. As we've already read, then we see as it gets to the next section on many who say to me, Lord, Lord, he says in verse 23, I will tell them, depart from me, workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. So one of the most heinously crafty devices of the enemy. No wonder Sproul called this the scariest passage in the, in the New Testament, right? One of the most heinously crafty devices of the enemy and of the flesh is the delusion of safety that comes from a false profession and phony religiosity. The wide gate and the easy path allure many straight into the very pit of hell. It's heartbreaking. It's a travesty. Jesus said they will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And tragically, in this group are many false professing Christians, and they walk right into it. Standing before Jesus on that day with their confident professions and their self-righteous works, thinking they're about to enter heaven, only to hear Jesus declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you. It's heartbreaking, right? So Jesus continues, however, as he, and he concludes the Sermon on the Mount after these teachings with a parable with an analogy to illustrate these things. And listen, he provides this for our benefit and for your benefit, okay? In order that we may more fully understand this vital issue, and vital such a weak word, to call it vital is true, but it feels like such a huge understatement because getting this right is literally the difference between life and death, eternal reward and blessing, or everlasting punishment and condemnation. So God, through his word, gives us a clear and gracious warning. Let's look at it and read it together as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount uh, with this illustration. Let's look at verse 24. So everyone then, or therefore, that's the word, right? So it connects, it's a conjunction that connects back to what has just been said, all right? So therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then we're going to come back to verse 25, but then let's go on and look at the counterpart here, the contrast in verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't, excuse me, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So Jesus gives us a contrast here set between obedient hearers and disobedient hearers. And in this illustration, he likens them to builders. All hearers are builders, okay? Each group is building a house. Each person is building their life upon something. That's not where the difference lies. So to the casual observer, especially in this context of the, the false professions, to the casual observer, there may not be any noticeable and clear difference. The difference is found at the foundation at what is being built upon. The house built on sand may be an architectural marvel. It may be that house, you know, it's like, man, I love passing that house. It's in its grandeur, right? It's stately, it's massive, all right? I bet there's a bowling alley and sometimes I pass house and think, there's probably a bowling alley and a movie theater in that basement. It's just this huge, magnificent, beautiful, house or buildings driving through the big cities, right? These architectural marvels, 
all right? But if it's not built on a solid foundation, it's no use. It's gonna crumble. All that work, all that stateliness, all that beauty, right? And it will crumble because it's on a shaky foundation. Uh, there's a, uh, I looked this back up because I remembered something like this and I found it, thankfully. Uh, there was a Roman historian named Tacitus and he recounts in his writings, there's this great tragedy. There was this amphitheater, all right, of Attilius in a Roman town called Fidenae, just outside of Rome. And Emperor Tiberius had reinstated the gladiator contest. And Attilius, very hastily, right, trying to capitalize on this, right, he constructed a large and beautiful amphitheater to host the games. But unfortunately, in the year 27 AD, during its first use, the stadium collapsed. And according to estimates, all right, I think, uh, uh, oh, who was the other historian? Suetonius, something like that, and, and Tacitus, uh, roughly between 20,000 and 50,000 people were killed. Might be closer to the 20 to 25,000 killed and then about that many more casualties and injuries. Okay, now, Tacitus goes on, though, as a historical, right, as a, as a historian, and he goes on to state the cause of the collapse and what it was attributed to. And he says, quote, they did not dig through, Attilius did not dig through the unsuitable ground down to the foundation rock. So there's a real-life historical example, right, that just drives the point home, right, this beautiful amphitheater. Okay, used for ungodly purposes, but still, architecturally, this magnificent amphitheater built, right? But on such a poor foundation and not dug through down to the rock, right, to give it a firm foundation. So when the crowds entered and the spectators were there, it collapsed. And 20,000 plus were killed and that many more were injured that day. Listen, wise builders build their houses on a solid foundation. Foolish builders build their houses on shaky foundations, foundations likened to sand. And note, think through this. There are only two types of foundations. There's only two choices. The house that is built on the rock, who is Christ, okay, that's, that's one group. And all the others who build their house on the sand, on a poor foundation, which represents literally everything else that people think and live for in their worldviews and in their practices and in their religions and everything they put their trust in is swallowed up, right, is in that one group. And people live for all sorts of things, don't they? Some people live just for, for money, right, and career success, achievement, religion, pleasure, partying, Drugs, relationships, work, family. So some of these are noble things. These aren't all bad things. Some people live for very noble things, right? Um, popularity, beauty. Some people live for charity, love helping the poor, love being involved, right, in charitable organizations. Some people thrive on and live for politics, entertainment, material possessions, travel, Weekends, right? What's the old phrase? The old bumper sticker. I live for weekends, right? Uh.
etc. The list goes on and on. And then from the human perspective, these people range, right, from the most upstanding models of human virtue to the dregs of human society. From CEOs to homeless beggars, from PhD professors to high school dropouts. But they all, every one of them, share something in common, right? Because they're all lumped into this one group. They are building their houses, their lives, trusting on a shaky foundation. They are that amphitheater, right? They're building their lives up and they're feeling good about it. And guess what? On that day when they stand before the Lord, it will collapse. It will not hold ground, okay? In both cases, we'll look at now verses, come back to the verses we skipped over, 25 and 27. In both cases, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And of course, you know the story. The house built on the rock stood firm and the house built on the sand collapsed. And Jesus said, great was the fall of it. So the context here does not support the idea that this parable, because as I'm looking and studying, right, and just listening to different sermons and commentaries, the context here does not support the idea of this parable, simply illustrating that if you put Jesus at the center of your plans in life, they'll succeed. And if you don't put Jesus at the center of your life, they're doomed to failure. Well, listen, there's truth in that. But I'm just saying, that's not the main point. Follow the train of thought in the discourse. This is about something much bigger. This is about something much deeper, okay? Jesus has been talking about wide and narrow gates and one way leading to destruction and one way leading to life. Good and bad trees, one leading to trees being cut down and burned in the fire, okay? False professions, it says, and on that day, I will tell them, depart from me, right? Judgment. So that's, that's the flow here. So this parable is to emphasize that and highlight that, all right? Jesus is referring to the day of judgment, the day when we will all stand before the Lord, and we will all stand before the Lord to give an account. And on that day, there's only two groups, right? Just like there were only two gates, two types of trees, two foundations, the house built upon the rock. So let's kind of bring this home. The house built upon the rock is simply this, is the life trusting in Jesus because he is the rock. Not what you do, not how you do it, not, right, not some certain level of obedience. Jesus is the rock. And if your life is built on trusting in him through faith, then you are standing and building on the, the only firm foundation that exists, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So, question, is your life built on the solid rock of Jesus? Are you trusting in him fully, in his work, his perfect life, his obedience? He's the only one who loved the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And even in this very Sermon on the Mount, we read, he's the only one who came to fulfill the law perfectly. 
He is the hope of salvation. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. So trusting in him, all right, that's the house built on the solid rock. So does the fruit of your life point to that? Does it point to Jesus? Do you hunger and thirst for fellowship with him? Okay, and not that these works, okay, it's not what saves us. We know that, right? But they are the evidence of salvation. If you are a disciple, right, it's, I don't want you trusting in a cheap grace. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, okay? You've been given a new nature. And yes, we'll be imperfect, right? We will, until we reach glory, right? We will not be in glorified and perfected bodies. We will continue to struggle with sin. I know these things won't be done perfectly. That is not what I'm saying. But it's the hungering and the thirsting there, right? But salvation does lead you to a relationship with Christ, right? And uh, the Holy Spirit being implanted within you, all right? And the obedience of faith comes out of that, right? Is being saved the greatest thing in the world to you? Does worshiping Jesus and honoring him and bringing him glory thrill your soul? If so, that's a, as imperfectly as that is, is that your heartbeat though? Is that what drives you? And if so, that's a good sign. If not, beloved, beware. Don't settle for cheap grace. Don't be duped by a false profession or religiosity. Jesus said the gate is wide and the path is easy that leads to destruction and many will enter it. And the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Listen, the narrow gate is Christ. He said so. John 10, 9. Jesus said, I am the gate. I am the gate. If anyone uh, wants to, oh, sorry. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So as you're challenged with the somber heaviness of the, the reality that there is a just and a holy God ruling and reigning over the universe. And that you will answer to him, right? And without Christ, that is a dreadful, fearful, worrisome thing, right? And it should be. Right? But, but listen to the good news because there is good news. Jesus said, I am the gate. If you enter by me, and listen to the grace and the beauty of it. Right? I am the gate. If we enter by him, we will be saved and we will go and find pasture. And he came that we may have life and have it abundantly. All right? But here's the path. Here's, here's what keeps it from this, from this idea of cheap grace. Right, Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Also heed Jesus' words here because he told his disciples and us, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life in this world will lose it, the shaky foundation right? The house built on sand. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The path, this is the path of salvation. It's the way of true discipleship. Let me quote here um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer on uh, this idea of cheap grace. 
Uh, Bonhoeffer says, quote, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. And for the sake of that treasure, a man will go and sell all he has. It is the pearl of great price, which the merchant will sell all his goods to buy it. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because of who it calls us to follow, Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life, namely Jesus himself. Uh, So listen, as we close, right, I just want to highlight and just meditate with you and focus on a few passages, right? Kind of stemming from our memory verse in, um, in Psalm 31, right? Jesus is the rock, and what a glorious rock he is. The rock symbolizes God throughout the scriptures. And so in just this closing time, just meditate with me on not only the, the, um, the security and the stability right, of being on the rock and having your house built on the rock on a firm foundation. But let's just consider uh, the the glory of the rock who is Christ, right? Because 1 Corinthians 10.4, in referring back to Exodus, right, says they all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ, Isaiah 28, 16 says, this rock is a precious cornerstone, right? Stable, right? Unlike, unlike Attilius, all right, Jesus lays a strong and a firm cornerstone for all his people to build upon, right? In Exodus 17, when Moses struck the rock, what came out of it? You know, kids, I bet you know, right? When Moses struck the rock, what poured out of the rock? water, right? Well, that points to Christ, right? When Jesus, the rock of our salvation was struck, what pours out of him? Living water, right? And that's what Jesus offers. So our rock, Jesus, is precious. He's our cornerstone. He is living water to quench our thirsty souls, okay? And then uh, Psalm 31, our memory verse, two and three, Our rock is a refuge. He's a fortress. He is our safety and our haven, right? We're fighting a battle. He's already won. We don't know what he's doing. We don't know what tomorrow will hold, but we know what he's done, and we know how the story ends, right? Our rock is firm, trustworthy. If you're in Christ, you are safe and secure, Right? And last one, Deuteronomy 32.13 says that, um, he, that sweet honey will come from the rock. Ever heard of that? Honey coming from the rock? Kind of like water coming from the rock, right? right? Honey coming from the rock and oil, precious oil from the flinty stone. Deuteronomy 32.13. Listen, beloved, all right? As bad as the bad news is, is 
how much more glorious the good news is. Right. The rock is a person. It's Jesus. And he is sweet. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is firm. He's eternal. He is sure and steadfast. He is living water. Right? Trust in him. And if you are trusting in him, then let's continue to magnify the Lord together. As we prepare to come to this table of grace, may you just be renewed as you savor the sweet and living water and the everlasting refuge that God has provided for us through his body and his blood. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for what you have done for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us precious and important warnings, and you give us precious promises. Lord, we thank you so much that you have made a way for us to be saved, and not just saved as in not being destroyed, but saved unto life. You came to, to bring abundant life. You came to bring living water. You are the honey from the rock. Father, you are, uh, you are the most excellent and awesome and praiseworthy being in the universe. To know you is to know life. To be with you is to enjoy eternal paradise forever. For in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Father, I pray this morning that those who do know you, Lord, will be encouraged by that. Father, that they, we will all be encouraged and that we will be strengthened. Father, as we just consider what you've done for us and how, how excellent and awesome it really is that, that you have given us a salvation built on the rock that is you yourself. Father, for any in here who don't know you, Father, who these things don't resonate, Father, who are living for other things, oh, Lord, grant them repentance. Open their eyes to see the shaky, sandy foundation that lives built apart from you will, will bring about. Father, pray that no one in this room and no one in our circles and in our families will hear those, 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 those awful words, depart from me, I never knew you. Father, we want all of our loved ones to know you and to be with us and to be in glory and in heaven and in your everlasting kingdom forever and ever. So Lord, we pray for them. We pray now that as we come to your table that you would be glorified and that you would just continue to work in us in this time. In Jesus' name. Amen.